Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hello, is this Jason? It is. Hey, Jason. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm excellent. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jason Flum, thank you so much for calling uh We've been telling people for the last month where we're going to talk. We actually, we thought we were going to talk to you last week. And we told everybody, we're going to be talking to him tomorrow. And then right. we come to work and our producer's like, we don't talk to him until next week. So we're really excited about this interview, clearly. <laughs> well, I'm excited that you're excited. And I'm excited to be here with you guys because I've listened to your show. And I think you guys do a great job. Well, thank you, Jason. Jason, um, it's Lazo. I know you can't see me, but uh, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, and for a long time, hadn't even spoken, uh, but our careers had intertwined in past, you know, I guess when you're in the, you know, music business or the radio business, you don't even know whose lives you affect as you, uh, move through it. Well, that's certainly true. Yeah. It is an odd sort of a thing how that you're, you're, you know, there's a disembodied body on the other side of the, uh, uh, the airwaves. Right. So it's, uh, it's a good point. You make I never thought of it that way, but you're not wrong. Right. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I've always just been interested about you is the fact that, you know, if I'm correct, and, and you can just stop me at any point, but you started out as a guy hanging posters at record stores and turned that into just an amazing career and an amazing life when, you know, a, a lot of people who start hanging posters in record stores quit. Right? Like they think, oh, I'm not getting treated fairly. I'm not making enough money. I'll go be an accountant. But you're the kind of guy, from what I understand from your story, and we'll get into the other things and why I think this leads to you doing great things for the world, is this ability to not give up. Yeah, well, you know, there's that great expression, uh, preparation plus skill equals luck. I've always thought that it's preparation plus skill plus perseverance that equals luck, right? Because not too many people ever get lucky on their first try at anything. And most people that have ever had, you know, good ideas or discovered great artists or found great works of art or whatever kind of thing, whatever field they're in, uh, I can guarantee you that the overwhelming majority of them were told by the people who they reported to or who were the decision makers or who wrote the checks that their idea was terrible right. and that it was never going to go anywhere. And then they had a choice whether to you know, trust their instincts or whether to trust the people that they had been told were people that know what they're talking about and people that they had to appeal to, the gatekeepers, right? So 
Yeah, you have to keep going. Um, I don't know what happened to other field merchandisers that were field merchandisers around the time that I was putting up posters in record stores. That's what they used to call it, field merchandisers. But for me, I fell in love with the business, and I realized that it was you know, what I wanted to do. I had failed at being a rock star, and I decided if I could find a way to work in the business and help other people become rock stars, then I could live vicariously and my dreams out vicariously. So that I just set my sights on that. Did you always know in your head uh, you could hear a hit? There's a thing, and I, clearly I've never, not nearly as successful as you, but there was a thing, even when I was a young kid, I could hear a song on the radio and be like, oh, people are going to like this. People, I, it, There's something that clicks, and not everybody you know, has that, and some people have it to, you know, the gift is wide range, right? You know, you're a little bit, or someone like you who can hear it off the bat. Have you always had that? Did you hear a song and you go like, oh, people are going to like this? I think everybody thinks they have that, right? And the fact is that everybody does have that when they're just being consumers, right? When you're being, because then you're totally objective, right? When music is magic, it's just something that just happens to you as you go on about your day or your life. And then when it hits you, it just hits you. So you're not thinking about it at all. The difficulty becomes when you get on the other side of the process, you get it behind the desk, and now your te- your job is to analyze and to try to guess correctly. And all of a sudden, you start overthinking or thinking at all, and your objectivity goes out the window. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing about the music business, different than movie business, right? The movie business they've always been able to show a movie to an audience and then they go, ah, I love the movie, but I hate the ending, you know? Right. And if enough people said that they changed the ending because my opinion is that they were able to replicate the actual experience of watching a movie. They put a bunch of people in the theater, they give them popcorn, they show them the movie and they react the way they would react in a movie. Now, when you do that with music, you can't duplicate the experience because music happens to you. You're in a store, you hear a song, right? You're driving in your car, you're with some friends, you get brought to a show. And you just react. So no one's ever been able to figure out how to test music in the way that other, some other creative art forms have been able to be tested. So I think that sort of speaks to the, 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 the little, you know, the, the problem that you raised inadvertently in talking about the instincts. But yeah, and listen, everyone in the music industry is wrong. Most of the time, right? It's like baseball. Nobody bats 400. I was going to say that. And what do you so, think? You're, because, you know, you've, you've known for signing huge and you can look up uh, uh, Jason Farman. You'll see all the bands, huge bands that he's signed and things that he's done in the music industry. Um, but what do you think your percentage is? Two questions. What do you think your percentage is of hitting and how many demos do you have in the backseat of your car that you know that if somebody would have just heard, they would have been smashes? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> first of all, it depends on your definition of success, right? right. Success comes in all different shapes and sizes. Even number one records come in different shapes and sizes, right? I mean, you have every week there's a number one record, but then there's I Will Always Love You, right? right. Or, you know, pick one that's just like a monster hit or a Dell, right? It's just monster hits, right? So sometimes there's a number one that's number one, and there's a number one that's number one. And right. so, um, you know, for me, if I look back on all the acts I've signed over all the years I've been doing this and say, which one's made, you know, any significant impact at all, you know, I would say, I don't know, 20% of them, maybe 25%. Okay. But, the, but the good news is in the music business, if you're able to once in a while identify a monster hit, and then there's probably a good baseball analogy there too, right? If a guy's in charge of drafting players, and he's wrong 75% of the time, but once in a while, 
you know, he discovers Derek Jeter, right? Right. Or somebody in here. Oh, this guy's a genius. Right, you know? right, so, right. I mean, it's a game of, you know, it's a game of hits and misses. But, um, you know, when you get, uh, you know, when you're lucky enough to get, you know, really lucky enough times, um, then, you know, you get to go into the Hall of Fame. And I'm not saying I'm in the Hall of Fame, but I'm saying, you know, I, did, I have had a really – a great run, and and I do consider myself very very lucky just to have even had the opportunity to be in the business right. in the first place. Well, I appreciate your humility, but you are in the Hall of Fame. You're Jeter esque. Okay. Ah, thank you. <laughs> You're too kind, too freaking, too freaking kind, too freaking kind. All right, but so I, yeah, let me. So let's get to because we really want to talk to you. But so you, you're a guy. You've signed these bands. You're living in New York. You say you wanted to be a rock star. You're helping other people become rock stars. I, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know that you're living like a rock star, probably right. Like, I mean, life's pretty good, and there's things going on, and all of a sudden you say, "I want to be a." philanthropist uh, there, there's some wrongful convictions going on and i need to get involved in this and and i find that amazing uh if, for myriad reasons but one of them is that you know you have to really be passionate about something and i find it hard to be passionate when i'm basking in success Absolutely. about anything but my yeah. success right like you know so you're looking at it like what more what happens to you along the way where you say hey this is something i'm really interested in well look i i was very again super lucky to be born to the parents i was born to and my dad was my hero and my mentor and he taught me and my brother he said listen i've told my kids this as well he said do whatever you want to do try to be the best at it but just make the world a better place because that's the only definition of success that really matters and i was like well i want to be a success in his eyes and so i've been trying to you know live in his shadow and his footsteps and, and try to live up to his ideals so um you know for me it happened quite serendipitously you know it just was an article that i saw in the newspaper in 1993 so 30 years ago about a kid named stephen lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a non-violent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in new york state and yes you heard me correctly it was a non-violent first offense cocaine possession charge it was not an insignificant amount of coke by any means but it was still possession and i was like how could this be this doesn't make any sense at all I had my own issues with drugs as a kid. You know, I was very lucky now to have been arrested and ended up going to rehab because of the color of my skin and the zip code I was raised in. And I was fortunate to have a boss who recognized the problems that I had and sent me to rehab. And, um, you know, I was sober for a very long time. So, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, I certainly didn't need to go to jail. I just needed some help. And then, right. and then I went on to start businesses and, you know, employ dozens of people, pay all kinds of taxes. And it was good for society, <laughs> but I didn't go to jail. But so this story just messed my head up so bad. I was like, I could imagine it could have been me. This guy was 32 years old. I was 32 years old. He had been in prison for eight years. I'd been sober for almost eight years. I was like, that could have been me. I'm not religious, but I was like, there before the case, before the grace of lowercase God go out, right? Because I'm not a religious guy, but I just could see it. So I was like, I got to try to do something. I didn't know what I was up against. And you're on. So I called the only. Oh, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Like I said, I called the only criminal defense lawyer I knew at that time, a guy named Bob Kalina, because he represented two of the artists I had signed, Stone Temple Pilots and Skid Row, and they were getting arrested weekly, if you remember, back in those days. <laughs> and among, right. I was going to say, so you knew he was good. I called Bob. I said, Bob, what can be done about this? He goes, not a damn thing. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just the Rockefeller drug laws. It is what it is. And I was like, well, 
let's try. To me, so, make a long story short as I can, he he took the case pro bono as a favor to me, and we ended up in a courtroom in Malone, New York, six months later or so. And Malone's right up by the Canadian border. They brought this kid in in shackles, like he was a mass murderer, like legs chained together, hands chained to his waist. And I sat there holding his mother's hand in the courtroom. Uh, Shirley was her name. And the arguments go back and forth. There was an old judge with white hair. I was like, this guy's never going to go. He's not, he's not going to do us any favors. And the arguments go back and forth. I don't know what's going on. I still had a mullet back then, for Christ's sakes, right? I didn't know <laughs> what was going on in this courtroom. But I knew it was exciting. And then the judge bangs the gavel, bangs the gavel down and says the motion is granted. And Bob, the lawyer, comes sort of scurrying over, and I'm like, Bob, what, what just happened? And he goes, we won. And I was like, what? And he goes, we won. I was like, holy shit, that's incredible. <laughs> what the hell is this? This is the best feeling I've ever had. Right. So Stephen Stephen was freed, and oops. Sorry, I forgot to put my do not disturb on, so I'm going to call coming. But um, so, uh, so yeah, Stephen was freed, and uh, and I was like, okay, now I know what to do with the rest of my life. I have I have some sort of superpower that I didn't know I had, and uh, I'm going to use it to help free every single person I possibly can who doesn't belong in prison, which I believe to be at least eighty percent of people that are in prison today. Wow, 80%. wow, that number you think is that high? Yeah, I mean. It's not hard to get to that number when you look at it. You know, first of all, we had, you know, 40 years ago, we had about 200,000 people in prison 30, 40 years ago. And now we have 2 million. Wow. So it hasn't, there's no, there's no study. There's no serious social scientist or anyone who says there's been any benefit to public safety. In fact, quite the opposite of locking up all these people. So it doesn't make us safer. And the overwhelming majority of these people are not dangerous in the first place. They violated some law that, you know, probably should be changed or has already been changed, but it wasn't changed retroactively. You still have a huge number of people in prison for simple drug possession in America. We still have 40,000 people in prison in America for marijuana possession. Right. It's like, it's legal, folks. What are we doing? Right. You know, and then there's conservatively, I would say there's 150,000 people that are actually innocent in prison right now, as we're having this conversation, sitting in a steel and concrete cage subject to the most terrifying conditions that you can imagine. Um, you know, and so, you know, you start adding up these numbers and it's like, what are we doing? No other country does it like this. You know, Western Europe, we, we, we incarcerate our own people at five times the rate per capita of Western Europe, 14 times the rate of Japan. We incarcerate black people in America at a higher rate per capita than South Africa during apartheid. Wow. You know, when it was a crime to basically exist for a black person in South Africa. So it's like, what are we doing? And why are we doing it this way? It doesn't make any sense. You, either, you have to come to one of two conclusions, which is, and, I, and it was a Republican, you know, pretty, pretty high-powered senator and former Secretary of Defense under Reagan who studied these things, who told me this, Jim Webb. And he said, if you, if you study the system, and he had studied the Japanese detention system extensively, he's like, we can incarcerate people at 14 times the rate per capita in Japan. Like, so you have to come to one of two conclusions. Either we are the most evil people in America, because and then therefore we have to lock up so many of our own citizens, or we're doing it totally wrong. Right. It's only one of two ways you could look at. It. I don't believe we're the most evil people in, in the world. I think I think we're basically more or less the same as everybody else. Yeah, we just have you know developed this addiction to policing and prosecuting and incarcerating 
our own citizens. Do you for- think I, I've always had this this theory, um, and it's a weird thing, but we've talked about it on the show before. Is somehow along the line, um, you kind of start to side with the defense. Or you start to side with a prosecution, and you kind of find yourself as that person. When cases come out, you you think about things in that way. And I don't know how you get there or not, but one of the things, even as a, a, a teenager, I thought to myself, and, and it's become more clear now, and is that prosecutors and police officers, to me, and I, not all of them, obviously, but to me, it's about winning the case as opposed to finding the truth. And I always thought that it was about finding the truth. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that I think they really, really, really want to win. And it seems so odd to me. I understand a defense attorney saying, hey, my job at the end of the day is to give this person the best defense possible. That's my job. I don't understand how a prosecutor thinks my job is not to find the truth, that my job is to win this case. No, you, you really hit it on the head. Um, you know, the answer is a defense lawyer has a duty to defend their client the best they can, regardless of the circumstance. And we have a constitutional right to that. We all do. The prosecutor is supposed to be in pursuit of justice. Right. And there's a defense lawyer in California named Andrew Stein, been doing this for 40 years. We're working on a case together now of a guy named Andre Burton, who's been in for 39 years for a crime he didn't commit. And in one of the craziest trials I've ever I've ever seen, the whole trial lasted two hours and 12 minutes start to finish. But so, you know, Andrew told me that he often will in his closing arguments, he'll say to the jury, you know, when this prosecutor wraps up this case, and goes back to their office, hers or his or whoever it is, their office. No one's going to say, did you get justice today? They're going to say, did you win? Right. It's all about winning for them. And, and that, that's really terrible because they lose track not only of, this, uh, of the idea that these people who are on trial are individuals with hopes and dreams and families and you know, and, and, and rights, you know, but also when they go ahead and lock somebody up who didn't commit the crime, especially if it's a violent crime, it's almost every situation. It's then therefore also true that the actual perpetrator remains free. Right. So when justice is Bob Dylan said all those years ago, when justice is a game, then we all suffer, right? Society is much less safe. And ironically, the people that we're paying to, you know, protect us and to represent us and to serve us, when they go ahead and just turn a blind eye to all of that, they're actually working in a certain way for the perpetrator. When they're prosecuting someone who's innocent, the perpetrator's off somewhere going, hey, this looks good to me, man. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm good here. You know, like this is, I, I like where this is going. I hope they convict this guy. Then they'll stop looking for me. Right. And, you know, and then they're free to commit more mayhem if that's what they choose to do, which they often do. And why is it we've seen so many instances of 
prosecutorial misconduct, I guess we'll call it, where we know, hey, this person looks innocent, this prosecutor, the prosecutor, this person, or whoever the current DA is, whatever the situation may be, they, they have evidence that they're withholding. They, they, they don't seem to want to help get this person exonerated. And I've always want, it's hard for me to tell, is it because they don't want the extra work or because, you know, you hear a lot of people in these interviews say, well, the prosecutors, you know, they don't want to they don't want to turn this stuff over because they don't want to look they don't want to be wrong. They, they never want to be wrong. I think, is that it? Like, I, I like to think that as a citizen, if I saw a, a district attorney said, Poof, really got that one wrong. I just want to come out and hold a press conference. We found some evidence. I made sure to get that over to the lab right. and to get it to the defense and everything else. And, you know, we, I think we might have put the wrong person in prison. That's the kind of person I want. Is there any indication that that would be a, a bad a way to try and go about being a prosecutor as far as keeping your job? Are we just all about numbers, numbers, numbers in America? Lock them up? No, I mean, that's that's what it should be. And I think there are probably a fair number of prosecutors who go into the job thinking that that's what they're going to do. But then somehow or other, they get caught up in the in the power and the and the ambition and the other things that are that are driving them to just get these wins. And to, you know, I've seen prosecutors brag about having a perfect record, right? I, I mean, there's, we covered a case on my podcast, Wrongful Conviction, recently. It's a guy named John Juca, a uh, Brooklyn case of a guy who's been there for 20 years. He's innocent. I mean, he's, he's clearly innocent. But the prosecutor was bragging, and she's now got her got a TV show and whatnot, but brags about never having lost a case. You know, never lost a case. Perfect record in murder trials. Perfect record. Well, you know what? You're basically bragging about having locked up innocent people, if that's the case, because right, right. the system is not designed, and, and there's always human error, and there's always, and, and this case is one of the weakest and craziest cases we've ever seen. John Juca, G-I-U-C-A. Hey, look up the episode. We put it out only less than a month ago on the Wrongful Conviction podcast. It's incredible. And, you know, i got to give you another real-life example. You know, we, we covered a case with a guy named John Kinzel, and I went on the Dr. Phil show to talk about this case as well. And John was a guy who was accused by his stepdaughter of having assaulted her in, in, in the most brutal ways, sexually assaulted her. She was nine years old, and basically she didn't want to, she's acknowledged it, she didn't want to have him as her stepdad. She wanted her own dad back, right? So her little friend said, listen, if you tell your mom that he's, you know, molesting you, she'll get rid of him. And so she did. And her mom, to her credit, was like, sweetheart, we live in a trailer. You've never been alone with him. She didn't even like the guy. They were getting divorced. So the mom wasn't like protecting him. She was like, you, 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 it's not nice to tell lies. You can't tell these kind of lies because it, it could hurt people. And, you know, she literally had never been alone with the guy. So it was impossible. But the lie grew. You know, one of the friends told somebody, a caretaker or a parent, they went to child services, they went to the cops, and then things progressed from there. So he, the, the story became that he had been doing these horrible things to her for a year and a half, but there was no medical evidence to support it. The child had not been assaulted, according to the doctors. And furthermore, on the eve of the trial, the little girl, who's now 11, I think, at the time, she goes to her aunt and says, I can't do this anymore. They've been making me lie. I've been, this is all a lie. I don't want to testify. I don't want to be here. I can't do this. I, I made up the whole story. The aunt runs to the courtroom, says to the prosecutor, she's, she's admitted now that she's lying. We've been telling you this all along. The whole family knew she was lying. They're like, she doesn't want to testify. This is not, we've got to stop. She's admitted that it's all a lie. And the prosecutor screams at her, has her thrown out of the courtroom. They take the little girl and throw her into a room with an armed guard. And they tell her, you're going to kitty jail. Unless you say exactly what we told you to say, you're going to kitty jail. 
and you better. And they scared her so bad that she got up and said what they wanted her to say. And she's now spent most of the rest of her life trying to undo this thing. And in his case, I mean, they tried him three times before they got a conviction because the evidence was so weak. And he was ultimately convicted by a 10 to 2 jury. And Louisiana was one of only two states where you could do that. He's been in prison for like 27 years now. His name's John Kinzel. John Kinzel. And she went on the Dr. Phil show with me to say that this was all a lie. It was always a lie. And it was just a lie that got out of control. And she couldn't put that genie back in the bottle. But even right to your point, Laszlo, you know, when she went back, when she was like 18, 19 years old, she went back to the prosecutor's office, drove herself in there from far away where she lived and said, I got to undo this. I got to roll this back. This is wrong. Right. It was never true. It's not true. And the prosecutor said, shut up or I'll charge you with perjury. Jesus My. Christ. And it's all about yep. victories, right? I mean, that's it. They don't want to look like they lost a case or they don't want to look like they did something wrong. Or is it, is it money? Or do they not want to get sued on the back end? I mean, I, I, I can't put my head around how you would be able to be the person who put someone in prison. And if anybody's ever spent a day in there, or even, I mean, hell, not even prison, if you've ever been locked up for any amount of time, you know how horrifying it is. For 20 years, and you know, this guy didn't do it. But, you know what? I'll just let him stay there and I'll go home. That, I, that to me, seems incredibly hard. To, that seems as evil as anything that anybody is in prison for. I mean, I got to agree with you, and I hear I hear your gang there agreeing as well. How can you see it any other way? It's it's pure evil. I and mean, here's John's been suffering in some of the worst prisons in America or the world for 27 years for a crime that never even happened. It's not like they got the wrong guy. No right. crime was ever committed, and that's surprisingly common. A lot of people, especially women, go to prison for crimes that never happened. It's like... Who's winning there? And you know who pays for it? The taxpayers. And even to your point, like, you can't sue a prosecutor, so that's not the motivation. They have absolute immunity, so you, they can't be sued. So someone could sue for compensation when they're exonerated. They might get it, they might not. But that comes from the taxpayers. That doesn't come out of the prosecutor's pockets. Right. So why would they? That doesn't even make sense as a reason for them to protect it. I believe that it, it should affect them in some way when they frame somebody, when they prove that they frame somebody, you know. Famous case, John Thompson was a friend of mine. Uh, he's not around anymore, but he was sentenced to death in Louisiana. I was also in Louisiana case. And he wrote a remarkable op-ed in the New York Times because when he was exonerated about a month before his execution date with the help of the Innocence Project, and found the DNA that proved that he didn't commit the crime. And he was able to prove that the prosecutors knew that he was innocent before they prosecuted him. He proved that, right? And he was awarded $14.5 million, and they appealed it all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court reversed it and gave him nothing. Um, they, they came up with some ridiculous excuse. But he, his point was, more, more importantly, his point was in the article, he's like, how is it that these prosecutors are not being tried for attempted murder? They attempted to murder me. Right. And they were going to for a crime they knew I didn't commit. And I've proven they knew it before they went to trial. So I don't know, man. I, I don't understand it. I don't understand how these people sleep at night. Um, I believe that was Harry Connick Sr., the, the prosecutor back then, who of eight people, the first eight people he put on death row, I think six of them were exonerated. 
Um, and that goes to the death penalty, by the way. If we could talk about that for a minute, if you don't mind. Yeah. Of course. So, you know, the death penalty, and we've covered a lot of death penalty cases on my podcast. Again, back to wrongful conviction. And please check it out. Like, stop what you're doing and, and, and subscribe to that, follow that podcast because not because it's me, but because the people that I interview are so extraordinary. But we've covered so many cases of innocent people on death row. Anthony Aponovich, Rob Will, um, Richard Glossop, Rodney Reed, and the list goes on. And we're going to keep doing it. We have a whole bunch more coming out of innocent people on death row. Um, and it's, it's so extraordinary that we're the only Western country that has the death penalty, right? No Western country has had it for generations. And yet we continue to do it, even though we know that we execute lots of innocent people. And I could take you guys to death row in Texas right now and walk down the hallways and be like, this guy's innocent. That guy's innocent. Oh, Oh, this one over here. He's innocent. Also Florida, Jesus Christ, Florida (laughs) doesn't even get it right. 70% of the time. And yet they continue to execute people. And it's, it's, and, and, and by the way, they keep them in there after their proof of use. Start with this one for a second. Anthony Aponovich in Ohio. You guys aren't even ready for this. Okay. Okay. Anthony Aponovich. I interviewed him on my podcast. Again, I'm going to shout out my own podcast again, wrongful sure. conviction. But so Anthony Aponovich was convicted of a brutal crime, rape murder crime. And 32 years later, his attorneys found evidence that they had been told had been lost. The government had said, we don't have the DNA evidence. It's been lost. It's been destroyed. Somebody found it and it was tested and it showed that Anthony was innocent. So he was freed 32 years later. So he's home for about 17, 18 months. He's sitting on the, on the, on his porch with his grandchildren. He's not a young guy anymore. Right. right. And he's sitting out there with his grandchildren about Eight cop cars roll up and says, and they jump out, they arrest him, they take him back to death row. Why? Not because they said he was guilty, but because they said the papers weren't filed correctly. Jeez. And that in Ohio, the only person that can, that can request DNA testing is the person who was convicted of the crime. So because it wasn't requested by him himself, even though they told him there was no point in him requesting it because it didn't exist. Right. It didn't count. They're for like, it doesn't sake. count. Sucks for I'm you, laughing dude. because it's, it's so, so fucking ridiculous. absurd. Like there's ridiculous. no other response except for just be like, this is so fucking ludicrous. Right? Yeah. So they're not claiming he's guilty. They're, they're just, just saying he filed the paperwork right. wrong. Yep. That, that, that he should have been the one to make the request. And since he wasn't, and so by definition, again, whoever did this awful, awful crime is, you know, is free to go wherever they are. I mean, I don't know where they are. Maybe they're in prison for another crime. Maybe they're out there somewhere. Maybe they're dead. I don't know. Whoever it is, they're, they're benefiting from Anthony's continued suffering, which now I think he's over 35 years on death row in Ohio, which is really, I mean, Ohio is a, is a messed up state. There's a lot of messed up states, but... Ohio is is pretty is really bad. I mean, in terms of just so many different reasons. You know, you got to Forrest Johnson in Alabama. We're about to do an episode on him. We're gonna do a whole season on this case. I mean, this guy. <laughs> the only evidence against him was a 15 year old girl who said she overheard a conversation in which somebody said he did it. Effectively, that's what it was. This is a guy, a, a retired. Uh, uh, 
not retired it, and an off-duty police officer was killed. And he had dozens of alibi witnesses because he was at a nightclub across town when it happened. And the girl who implicated him changed her story over 500 times across about 26 interviews that she did with police. She was after the reward money. And his co-defendant was acquitted. And because he had a public defender who didn't really mount an effective defense at all, he was convicted. And now not only the DA who convicted him, but many former judges, the former attorney general who loves the death penalty so much that he was the one who brought it back to the state. This is an old white guy who doesn't, I wouldn't say, have a soft spot for guys like Tavares Johnson. He's come forward and said this one. He said, he said, I don't understand how this guy was even tried or even arrested, much less convicted. The former attorney general of the state of Alabama, and yet Forrest Johnson is sitting in a cell on death row right now, 50 years old, while we're having this conversation. He's, and if you can imagine how bad that must be, oh. it's much worse than however bad you're imagining it to be. Take that and make it much, much, much worse, and you still won't be anywhere near the type of conditions that he and these other innocent people around the country are, are trying to survive in. And, and, that, and, you know, and many of them don't. You know, that sort of reminds me of, because Lazo and I were just talking the other day about Paradise Lost, uh, the West Memphis Three. And we had, you know, we, we when we met each other, that was something that we both connected on early on, talking about, you know, those guys, and you know, what, what, there was just a lot of discussions over cigarettes sure. about that. And over the years, we'd get updates to the story, and eventually we had Damon, uh, Damien come in, and we had him on the phone. And I remember you know, part of that original trial against him was the, the teenager who shows up and says, yes, I overheard him say something. And you're just, you know, n- nothing ever sat right with me about that, that testimony. And the more, as I got older and started to pay attention to more of these things and listen to podcasts like yours and watch true crime, you start to learn which kinds of evidence are oftentimes bullshit. And surprisingly, eyewitnesses, sometimes they're just full of shit, but a lot of times they really think they're telling the truth. And I believe that they think they're telling the truth at least, and they're just wrong because we overestimate our ability to remember what people look like, what sequence of events were, where eyewitnesses really aren't great testimony, are they? No, a powerful testimony, but the fact is that eyewitness testimony is extremely unreliable. And this is very important because a lot of people listen to your show and a lot of them are going to end up on juries. Um, and some of them will end up on criminal trials. And you need to understand if, the, if all there is is an eyewitness, but there's no other evidence, you can't convict. If all there is is a confession, but there's no other evidence, you can't convict. That's the other one. I always tell my, my girlfriend, I say, if we were on a jury, I wish that everyone needs to know these things before they, they go be on a jury. One is false confessions are not only a real thing, but they happen quite a bit. And And police, I think a lot of times when they get those false confessions maybe know or at least have a suspicion that they might have just pulled a false confession right. out of someone. It happens way more than people would like to think. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, look, and, and a lot of times there's physical uh, force that, that goes into it. There's mental, there's psychological torture that they use to get people to falsely confess to crimes. About 30% of DNA exonerations have involved false confessions, if you can believe wow, that. 29% 30%. of the first 150. Um, so, you know, it, it's really... And everybody says, oh, I'm smart. I would never falsely confess to a crime. Well, guess what? Everybody has a breaking point. And when you're in that room and you see no way out and they're using these psychological tricks, I mean, even, you know, Antoine Kuby, a case that I'm obsessed with in Illinois, this was a kid who had a scholarship at the University of Illinois. 
good kid, never been in trouble, good family. Not that anybody should go through this, but it just makes it almost a little more painful. And this kid was arrested. They planted evidence in his pockets. They claimed that he shot a guy eight times in the face. It made no sense. He had nothing on him. But all of a sudden, they searched him at the scene because he had driven his friend to a tire shop. His friend needed to get rims or whatever it was. And then his friend went and committed this horrible crime. But they arrested him. They found nothing on him. Then when they got to the police station, they were like, oh, look, he's got like uh, $800 in small bills in his pocket. So you're telling me you missed a wad that big when you searched him at the scene. Okay, fine. But in his case... They beat the shit out of him in, in the jail cell. And then, and in Illinois, Illinois cops, they were famous for this, right? And then they wouldn't give him a phone call. Everybody knows you're entitled to a phone call. Finally, the next day, as he's, you know, bloodied and, and there's evidence of this, right? And he's trying to figure out what the hell to do. He's never been in trouble. He doesn't know anything about the situation. And they said, look, if you want a phone call, you got to sign this uh, permission form for the phone. It's like a... It's just a blank piece of paper. We'll fill it out later. Oh, but shit. we're not giving you your phone call. Until you, yep. And he oh, was so messed up because of having been beaten so badly that he signed this blank piece of paper. And then they wrote in the confession. And the confession, you can read it, and it's all in cop speak, right? It's all. And then the projectile, you know, whatever the, the right. words are like, not words that an 18 year old black kid is going to use. Oh, okay. Right? I've or heard of this case. I do. Kid. I think I have heard of this case. So they did. And they didn't even, they just had him sign a literal blank piece of paper, right? They didn't have him sign this piece of paper that was a false confession and just tell him not to read it. They literally just took a signature and then fill, they fill out the confession. That's right. But we've had all sorts of cases like that. We've had people sign confessions that didn't speak English and couldn't read it. We've had people okay. that couldn't read it all to sign confessions. We've had people, you know, Look, like I said, everybody has a breaking point. And don't forget, and everybody should know this in case you're ever picked up and brought into a police station. First of all, the best advice I'm going to give is don't say a fucking word except right. for your name. Say your name, and I want a lawyer. Yep. And ask right. if you're free to go. If you're not free to go, just sit there until your lawyer gets there. Don't say another word. I would easily recommend performing surgery on yourself before <laughs> yes. you start talking in that situation because you'll end up on our damn podcast and you yeah. won't even know what happened because they are allowed, don't forget, they're allowed to lie to you in the interrogation room, not in other Western countries, but in America. And not only that, but they lie to you about lying to you, right? So we see cases where they'll say, Listen, man, you know, Laszlo, I mean, I'm not allowed to lie to you here. You know, I mean, that's against the law. So I'm not lying. I'm just saying your fingerprints were found on the on the knife that killed the, the, You know, I mean, the, the video shows you walking out of the damn apartment. We got a guy in the other room across here who says you did it. You know, that's what they did in the Central Park Five case. Yeah, known right. as exonerated break five, it down. Right? Yeah. Yep, they break it down. They tell you all. And your only way you can see out of it is to say something that they want to hear. And before you know it, it's too freaking late. And it's like, Jesus Christ. And the confessions, you'll see a lot of times these confessions don't make any sense. But it doesn't matter because a confession is the most powerful evidence you can have. And then back to your question about eyewitnesses. Eyewitness testimony is so unreliable. And when it's cross-racial, it's even more, it's less reliable than guessing. You literally have a better chance of just having a random person come into a room and do a lineup than you do with the actual person who experienced the crime because, or witnessed the crime. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Your, your, uh, your various, um, your physical reactions when you're witnessing or being victimized by violent crime, your senses go crazy. Obviously your adrenaline's rushing and, you know, there's a, a, a case that really speaks to this, which is Jennifer Thompson. 
um, and Jennifer Thompson was called the perfect witness. She was a college student in North Carolina, home one night, sober, about nine o'clock. Guy breaks into her apartment, uh, blonde. She's blonde. He was black. And he raped her and brutalized her for almost a half an hour. And she spent the entire time studying every feature, right? She's like, I am going to wait. If I live, I'm going to make sure he can never do this to anybody else again. And sure enough, she identified him in a photo array. She identified him in a lineup. She identified him in court with absolute certainty. And away we went. Well, 11 years later, there's another guy in the same prison who looked like this guy. And he was bragging about having done this crime. And they went and they were able to reinvestigate it. And sure enough, it was this other guy who bore some resemblance to Mr. Cotton. His name is Ronald Cotton. They wrote a book together called Picking Cotton. And the incredible thing is, you know, she was dead wrong. Yeah, she believed herself. As You know, I remember seeing her in an interview and thinking, okay, this is an example of someone. She believed it. She believed that she had the right person. I think that she really believed I know exactly who this is, and that's the person. She was confidently wrong. Oh, a hundred percent. She believed it. You know, I mean, look, sometimes, you know, you have witnesses where the cops will steer them and that's why, you know, into identifying somebody. And that's why, you know, we've been trying to institute innocence project and other organizations have been working on instituting something called a double blind, which means that the person conducting the lineup or the photo array or whatever should not know who the suspect is, because if they do, they're going to steer you to identify that person, right? Consciously or subconsciously, they're going to, you know, try to influence you and or try or do it, like I said, subconsciously. So that can be fixed just by having that person not know who the suspect is. And, yeah, and I'd and also like to see them videotape those lineups because far too often you'll see a videotape of the interrogation and then next thing you know they say, then later she picked out someone in our photo lineup. I'm like, why didn't you videotape that part of it? Right. I want to see how you did that lineup. That, that might be nice to know. All of that stuff should be videotaped. And amazingly, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, places where they still don't even videotape uh, interrogations. Right. That's crazy to me. Yeah, that's one of the reforms that we've been passing in different places. And, you know, I'm happy to say that our podcast has been a driving force in that. You know, we had a legislator in Washington State who was uh, named Strom Peterson who listened to the Wrongful Conviction podcast, and he was inspired to write legislation that, uh, makes uh, recording interrogations mandatory in the state of Washington. It wasn't. Just strangely enough, it wasn't mandatory. And similarly, in, in Illinois, we had a legislator who was inspired by our False Confessions podcast, the you know, Wrongful Conviction of False Confessions. And they you- there became they became the first state. As I was going to say, they became the first state to ban lying to juveniles during interrogation. Yes, the first state. So you know that's one step in the right direction. Do you think they've also done a very good job? And I say them as prosecutors and you know, maybe police, society in general. It's always weird to me because I think that's, I tell my son all the time, if you get pulled over by the police or they take you in, shut the fuck up and say, I want an, I want my, I want an attorney and my dad in that order. I want an attorney and my dad in that order. There's no other conversation to be had. I don't care what it is. Because I know you're going to think you're smart enough to talk to these guys and explain to them what you did. Fuck all that. That's not going to work. I want an attorney. Um, and I want my dad. But through media and through uh, these TV shows, these murder mystery shows that we watch, and all these people say, one of the things you hear all the time is, 
Well, really made him seem guilty because immediately he lawyered up. It makes me so angry. It makes me so angry. That should be, we should all be like, hey, I want an attorney. But they made it seem almost like, uh, well, you know what? His ex-wife was murdered. They went to his house and he lawyered up. Like it's an admission He's already of guilt. guilty, right? Yeah. Like he's already guilty. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's easy to twist these things around. Um, and you know, but before you know it, it it's like, I, I guess what I want to say is really, and I was just looking up another case that I wanted to bring up to you, but, um, the thing that, that boggles my mind is that somewhere we've lost track of the principles that everybody who watches any of these TV shows or has ever read any article, everyone knows that we have these principles of innocent until proven guilty and beyond a reasonable doubt, but somehow or other they're out the window. And the fact is that subconsciously and, and studies have shown this over 80% of people believe that if somebody's in the defendant's box, they must be there for a reason, right? Yeah. They, they, right. They, they, they wouldn't just be there. Like all these, look, you have this ornate courtroom and you have this, all these people here, and like there must be something going on. Otherwise, they're just wasting my time, and nobody wants to think about that either. So, um, yeah, so, so it's like we have to get back to that. And, you know, there's that famous principle, too, that it's better that there was a, it was a famous English, it's called Blackstone's Theorem, because it's a mm. English jurist named Blackstone over 100 years ago who says, better that 10 guilty men go free than that one innocent should suffer. Right. Yes, love and, it. You know, and I say that to people, and, and then Benjamin Franklin changed it too. He he believed it was hundred to one. He said it's better for a hundred people to go free. And I believe that we have to get back to that. And and that goes back to the conversation about the death penalty. Because I say to people who are in favor of the death penalty, I'm like, well, okay, I, I don't respect your opinion, but what percentage of innocent people is it okay to execute? Exactly. Is it ten percent? Because that's where we, that's where we're at right now. Around ten percent, we think. Could be higher. In Florida, it's much higher. Is it? Is it less than that? Is it five percent? Is it one percent? Well, some people say one well, percent is not that much. And then would that? Would your opinion change if it was you or somebody you loved? Right. And we know, of course, course it would. Of course, their opinion would change because because we know how personal it is. We take it personal. Like I say this, and you know, if, if someone uh, I loved was brutally raped and murdered, I would want to kill them. I know that. I know I would. I, I, you know, uh, it, that would be my initial instinct, my initial reaction. But as a society, we need to understand that and then step back and say, not everyone is guilty, and let's let the system play out, right, so that we're not killing innocent people. But we get so vengeful in the moment and only think about if it happened to us and we knew 100% and we saw it with our own eyes. And it, but that's not the way the world works. There's way too many shades of gray, and that's why we don't allow that type of justice, right? So uh, to me, it's like a very simple step back and be like, yes. So they say, but the argument always is, well, if they raped and killed your mother, wouldn't you want them dead? Yes, of course. But I also don't want 20% of the innocent people in Florida to be murdered. Like, there's, uh, you, you know, uh, there's uh, uh, all shades of gray to be looking at this situation here. 
And like you said, even if you saw it with your own eyes, we know that we talked about this, that you can be, you're wrong, often you're wrong. Right, and a lot right. of times these identifications are made, um, you know, a year or more after the, the crime, you know. Right. And that, of course, presents a whole other problem, right? When an arrest is made, you know, a year or two, we see this three years later, and someone says to you, well, Laszlo, where were you on the night of, right. you know, September 27th of, uh, of, of 2019? And you're like, ah. Uh, I mean, I know. like, oh, see that? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Sounds guilty to <laughs> so me. <ridiculous>. Sounds <laughs> right. guilty as fuck. And by the way, the case I was, I was just looking up, I wanted to, to reference a case because I think it speaks to a lot of the points we're talking about. There's a guy, again, another case we covered, a particularly powerful episode. I thought of a guy named Devontae Sanford in Detroit, Michigan, who was 14 years old when he was convicted of, I think it was a quadruple murder, or he was arrested for a quadruple murder that he couldn't possibly have committed. And he and four other kids uh, were arrested for this murder, even though the murder was overheard by a police chaplain who lived across the street from the house where this horrible crime took place. There were two survivors in the house and four people were killed. And he said that it was two grown men who ran out of the house. He saw them run out of the house because he heard the gunshots. And he looked, you know, he went to his porch and looked out. And nonetheless, and even though Devante's uncle was a retired homicide cop, and you'd think that they would give some deference to him, but, and he just happened to be around. He lived in the neighborhood. He came, he heard commotion, he walked over. And before you know it, they implicate this kid. Well, come to find out that not too long after he was arrested, a professional hitman named, um, let me tell you the hitman's name. He had, he had a good name for a hitman. This guy, I'll tell you in a second. Um, yeah, this is, this is, in, this is all over the place. NBC news, everybody covered this case it was so crazy. So yeah, he, he was, uh, he pled guilty by the way, to killing four people. He was one of those false confession cases and the hitman who had this guy killed more people than cancer. Um, he had an awakening because he killed somebody who he thought he shouldn't have. He was actually, this is a crazy freaking story. I'm going to find this hitman's name in a second. Oh, yeah. His name was Smothers. Vincent Smothers. No way. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy Smothers. So he had been hired by a cop to kill the cop's wife. And he had done so. But afterwards, and he had recently become a father of this guy Smothers. And he had killed a lot of people. And this is not hyperbole, right? When the cop, when it was exposed that this cop had hired him to kill his wife, the cop actually killed himself. But that's a whole nother story. So Smothers, he felt bad because his thing, and you'll hear this on the podcast, his thing was basically, look, the people I killed before were drug dealers, rival drug dealers, just not people I was hired to kill. He goes, eh, you know, I didn't feel any, I didn't feel any qualms about that. You know, they were in the, and they were in the game, they were in the life, I don't care, you know? But then he killed this woman who never did anything to anybody in his view, again, in his twisted view. And I don't even like the word drug dealers. So I'm going to take that back The people who are in the business. Right. So, so he came forward two weeks after the conviction, he came forward and he said, you know, he confessed to all these murders. He was actually in prison for eight of the other murders because he had hired them. And he came forward and said, by the way, those other four people over on whatever street that was on, that the 14-year-old kid was from, he goes, I did those two. He gave them every detail. He told them where the guns were. 
He told them who his accomplice was. He told them what room they were in, where the bodies were found, what they were wearing, who else was in the house, because there was one survivor who he let live. It was a woman that was uh, hiding under her bed. He told her what their conversation had been. Everything matched. And you know what they did? They hid that evidence. Of they course. Shut up. The hitman's got more so, of a conscience than the prosecutors and the police. Right. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, this guy, Devontae Sanford, he says, you know, it took, a, it took a hitman to save my life. It's like, you know, this is ironically, the hitman <laughs> had a much greater conscience than anybody in the prosecutor's office. I mean, these stories and, that you tell in your podcast, Wrongful Conviction, uh, they are, when you listen to them, they're almost, and, and I know you got started, you've been doing it for a long time, and you've been in it. Every time you hear a new one, is it still just a little bit more unbelievable? Like, I, 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 do, do you still get flabbergasted? Are you still like, what the fuck? Or are you, or are you more like, this is our system. of course, yeah. let's fucking get to work? No, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. This is what makes you such a great interviewer. Um, you know, the answer is, I, I, I always think I've seen everything, and then I hear the next case, Nelson Serrano. You know Ken Middleton, and I just I just go. I can't believe it. I, I can't believe the depths of the depravity of the system that allows people like this to be convicted and then to protect those convictions for decades until the person dies. And you know it's it's terrible. It's it's really it's it's un it's unreal. And it happens. Don't forget it. I mean, it happens everywhere. It happens in New York. It happens in California. It happens. In the deep south, it happens all over the place. And the system just, it doesn't like to admit mistakes. And so it's crazy because when you get, you know, arrested, it be, you get into this sort of legal quicksand. And it's so easy for them to wrongfully convict you. And then all of a sudden, now imagine, well, that was that easy when you had a presumption of innocence. Now all of a sudden there's the presumption of guilt for, for effectively, right? And now you have to find a way... You have to now. The burden of proof is on you. You have to prove you were innocent. Right. And they make it harder and harder. The laws just keep getting worse and worse. And these hurdles, you know, look at Anthony Ivanovich, but so many others. I mean, for all the people that we hear about that are exonerated, and I think, um, you know, there's, there's hundreds now a year, but there are so many tens of thousands of other ones that are just languishing that don't have the ability to have their voices heard or, or to get the right legal representation or to, you know, to do the work for themselves. And, and some of them just give up. You know, and we, like, when we talk about this, you know, and, and again, your podcast, wrong, wrongful conviction, we talk about this. We're not even really, we don't even scrape the surface of convictions for less than murder. Right. I mean, or, or less than, uh, you know, term limits in these things. So I'll give you an example of me and I'll make it really quick. But uh, I was leaving my house one day and a police car pulled up behind me and uh, asked me, if, you know, what my name was. I told them and then they took me out of the car and uh, they shackled me and took me to the police station. Now, the backstory to this is uh, there was a. Uh, a a car that I used to own that got a ticket for um, a, a, an expired license plate that never got paid. Somehow that paperwork that I sold the car didn't get to them. And so they arrested me. 
I tried explaining this to the police officer. You know, hey, that's not my car. He's like, yes, it is. I said, that car, I have a Chrysler 300, but the one you're looking at is white. The one you're talking about is black. These are two different cars with different VIN numbers. It's you. Takes me in. I have to post $500 bond. I bond out. He drives me home. As we're driving home, he makes two comments to me. One of them is, I see what happened now. Uh, but the police officer who pulled you over was a rookie. Don't you think you should have told him you sold the car? I said, why would I think, one, he's a rookie, and guy. two, why would I think, like, I, hey, just so you know, the VIN number to the plate's going to be different. What What's going on? So it, now when he shackled me, my kid was in the car, and I was taking him to preschool. Luckily enough, I was still close enough to my house that my ex-wife was there and she was able to take the child. As we're driving back, the police officer says to me, uh, he kind of figures it out, and he says, uh, this ain't your fault, but it sure is your problem. Now, I think about this every day. Now, one... I I, I think about that cop every day. I do, because when I see people get pulled over, and I think about it for these reasons, I think... One, I'm a white guy. I've got $500 to bail myself out, right? And I work at a job where I came in late and I told them, and they were like, what the fuck? Weird, right? Like, you know, you're fine. Nobody was threatening to fire me or anything. But what if I'm not? What if I don't have the $500? What if you pull me out of my car and my kid's in the car and nobody's home? Now you take the kid to Child Protective Services, you arrest me. I don't have $500 to bond myself out. It's Friday because you're doing a police sweep, so I don't get to see the judge till Monday. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't get to see a judge till Monday. They, and then, you know, who knows if they set a trial date or not because I still can't bond myself out. So whenever I get out of jail, uh, whenever that is, I can't fight it really. I, I probably plea bargain something down, even though it's not me. I do time. I get out. I got to go to Child Protective Services to try to get my son back. I don't have any money because you just charged me through the nose for a fucking crime I didn't commit. And then I go to work and they say, fuck you, because they don't care. I just missed Friday work and Monday and Tuesday. I'm fired. So now I don't have a job. My kid's in Child Protective Services. I owe the court money. I can't afford to pay the court the money that they want for a crime that I didn't fucking commit. And then you wonder why the fuck I I commit a crime. (laughs) I mean, I can't get out of it. It's unbelievable. And now, thankfully, like again, because you know, like you, like you said, white, right, zip code. I happened to be on the radio. I got on the radio and bitched about it, and it was taken care of. But uh, you know that uh, it's unbelievable to me that that could happen. And and I don't think people realize how quick that can happen until it happens to them. And like I said, it wasn't like getting picked up for murder. But but what that, if it was? But that what if it was? And also that could have snowballed out of control. Oh, yeah. And it does every day um, all over the country. I mean, we have over 400,000 people in jail right now who are in situations like you were in who just don't have the money to post bail. And, you know, that's that's a violation of the uh, I think it's the eighth and the 14th Amendments, equal protection and due process. And yet we do it day in and day out. Judges are required to consider the defendant's ability to post bail 
before they put, before they set bail, but they don't do it. And so, you know, when you look at this country, it's so crazy, the wealth gap here, but we have, you know, for about 40% of the population not only doesn't have $400, they don't even know anyone who's got $400 that could lend it to them. So for other people, you're exactly right. In, in that same situation, over traffic tickets, right? right over freaking traffic tickets, they're going to go to jail and they're going to sit there for months. And you're right, their life is going to turn to absolute, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's unimaginable. They're single parent. Like you said, they could lose custody. They could lose their housing. Right. right? The kid goes to foster care or, you know, if if they're in a custody situation, you know, now they don't get to see their kid anymore because they were arrested with a kid in the car. Like the thoughts that went through my mind of what's going to happen as they were taking me in, I thought uh, this, I don't, uh, I don't know how bad this could snowball. Yeah, it could get really bad. I mean, there, and there are people who serve years and years in jail awaiting trial for simple things like right. that, and it's insane. You know, we had that famous Khalif Browder case in New York City, rest in peace, you know, where he was brought in for, on suspicion of having stolen somebody's backpack. Because not, no weapon was ever alleged to have been involved. No violence was involved. And he was held in Rikers Island for three years, a young kid. I think he was uh, 16 when he went in. And bail was $2,500, but he didn't know anybody that had $2,500. His family certainly didn't have it. And he was brutalized by guards and inmates. He was kept in solitary confinement for two full years. And three years after he went to jail, they dropped the charges when they realized he didn't do it. But that's how long. And this is New York City, right? This is a few miles from where I'm sitting right now. And, you know, he went home. The case became pretty well known. You know, a lot of celebrities were getting involved, talking about it, whatever, even calling him. And, you know, less than a year later, he hung himself in his mother's apartment. Uh-huh. You know, he had been so terribly abused and traumatized in this in this prison that, you know, he couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, it's a tragedy on top of a tragedy on top of another tragedy. And it happens all the time. And it's really, there's no reason why we have police involved in traffic stops at all or in traffic tickets or why we lock people up for these type of things. It doesn't make any sense sense whatsoever and not only that but overwhelming evidence that not locking people up before a trial makes us all safer they're much less likely to commit a new crime exactly to your point than people who were locked up even if it's for a week or three days or or you know because their lives haven't fallen apart right Right. don't forget medication right you don't have your medications right when you come out you don't have access they've taken away whatever like it's all a downward spiral fast, fast, fast. And then you get hit with court fees and you get hit with this and you get hit with that. And by the way, just even imagine the horror of, you know, and, and we, we had a woman named Susan King on my show, uh, wrongfully convicted of murder in, uh, in Kentucky. And she talked about how she was just like horrified when she was brought in. Like, what about my animal? Like she lived yeah. alone. She's like, who's going to feed my animal? Right. And, and I talk about this very deliberately because I think it's important for people to realize that that's a thing too, right? Imagine that you have a dog, a cat, a freaking anything that you love and you don't have someone to take care of them. What the hell kind of terror is that alone? That taking your kids away from the equation or an elderly parent you're taking care of or whatever. Right. right. But you know, and it, it's also, I think super underreported, right? In this era where we see videos daily of police murdering unarmed civilians, right? Last year, um, you know, close to fifteen hundred. I think they they acknowledged that they murdered uh, was it 
I think police admitted murdering 1,240 people more than ever before. Um, and, and to put that in context, that's three to four a day. And those are the ones they admit to, right? That doesn't include George Floyd, who they said was a medical emergency until the video came out. doesn't include, you know, so many others. Tyree Nichols, right? Tyree Nichols, they yeah. said, was died of a medical emergency. He did. He died of a medical emergency. He was, he was beaten to death. Right, right. You know, but until the videos emerged. So we know they lie a lot about that. So they... They murder a lot of people in America, but what, and, and, and there's growing awareness of that, but what people don't talk about is, and they don't even keep records of this, but the authorities that have studied this have said that they kill police kill between 10 and a hundred thousand household pets a year. Wow. Mostly dogs. Right. And there are some really terrifying videos of this. You know, there's, yeah, we've seen they, some they're hard. bad. It's hard to watch, man. It's just so hard to watch. If you're if you're an animal lover like I am, it's just hard to freaking watch. I mean, and these are little little dogs, big dogs, dogs, right. you know, golden retrievers, right? The cops burst into a house. The dog goes up like woof, woof, woof. Like what's going on? I mean, look, the dog, the dog could react in a way because they're they're protective of of us humans, right? They love us more than they love themselves. But even in situations where they just come over and they're like, whoop, 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 they want to be petted or whatever, right? Because here's a stranger in the house. And it's like, boom, you know, this is blown away. Like, it's just, you know, so we need to approach public safety in a totally different way in America. I don't know what it's going to take for it to change. Some, Some cities have experimented with it. Denver, Eugene, Oregon, other places. Albuquerque now is experimenting with it where they're, you know, having the overwhelming majority of 911 calls go to people who are, you know, trained professionals that don't carry guns or badges. They they carry their, you know, their college degrees or whatever they have with them, you know, and they're, they're social workers or crisis intervention people. They're, you know, drug uh, overdose experts. And, you know, it, it, the, the, you know, my attitude is that police should only be called in situations where it's a violent crime in progress, they, they, you know, traffic stops. What the hell traffic stops? You know, like <laughs> tens right. of millions of traffic stops a year that, that terrify people at the best case scenario and worst case end up with them dead or whatever else. Cause they reach for their wallet or something. Right. The right. traffic stops with, with cameras everywhere. Just take a picture of the license plate and send somebody a ticket. No if shit. you think they right. sped or they, they went through a stop sign or whatever they did. You know what I mean? That's all we need to do. Right. And if there's an an accident, send a medical expert. Exactly. Right? Like, you it's know, not that right. hard. Like, just send a doctor. Like, someone who can help them, not arrest them. There's an accident. Yeah, I mean, look, my 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 dear friend Matthew Russian, you know, who I was able to help get him out of prison in Virginia, but he... You know, he was sentenced to 50 years for a non-fatal car accident that happened when he was having a seizure, right? He's a kid who suffers from autism, college student, never been in trouble in his life, was having a panic attack, and he had a seizure, and he did a U-turn and crashed right into the car driven by an elderly white guy. He's black. 19 cops showed up at the scene, whatever. The guy wasn't killed, but he was badly hurt, you know? And it was clearly the, the mistake of this driver, but he wasn't texting. He wasn't high on anything. He wasn't on any substances whatsoever. Uh, it was a car accident. And because the cops responded instead of medical professionals and because they took him to the police station and because he suffers from something called echolalia, where, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a symptom of autism, 
or a condition related to autism, I should say. Eventually, he just said what the cops kept repeating to him. You know, they, they got him to finally say he was trying to kill himself, which he was not. Oh, Jesus. And then once they got him to say that, they were like, whoops, okay, then this is a, you know, attempted, whatever they called it, attempted vehicular homicide or something. Yeah. And, when you talk about awareness with the police, like the, with police brutality, there has been a lot of awareness. We've seen these videos. We've seen protests. And I do feel like there's some more awareness when it comes to the system and bad evidence. And, I mean, for anyone who is interested in this stuff or interested in what the Innocence Project does, I mean, a lot of times with the Innocence Project, for years and years, kind of the, the goal was, let's see if there's DNA evidence that could exonerate someone. Because I'm 40 years old, so as a kid, DNA wasn't really being used yet. They didn't start using it at all until I was a kid. And a lot of times, they were putting people on death row for things like fiber as a, evidence or bite mark uh, evidence. And we kind of talked about the eyewitnesses being bullshit. We know that most states don't allow polygraph machines to be uh, used in, in court. So how do we get to a place where we say, look, there shouldn't be any forensic odontologist testifying about right. bite marks. There shouldn't be anyone Arson. testifying about si similar fibers. You know, I don't right. know what those big, the biggest, I don't know, what you probably have your priorities of which things you'd like to see removed and just not be admissible ever again. I don't know what they are. Oh, yeah. Well, that's you're absolutely right. I mean, the junk science aspect of of this our criminal legal system is so terrifying. Right. And it's interesting because science and law in America are actually opposite in a very real way, which is that science evolves and moves forward. And when new discoveries are made, textbooks are rewritten. Right. And, and new things are new practices are implemented and different medical procedures are right. And, and but in courts. A judge will just look at it and go, well, I see that a judge in 1953 allowed this type of bite mark evidence in. So uh, in a courtroom in uh, Missouri right. somewhere, so I'm going to allow it, allow it too. Right. And so, you know, these junk sciences, we did a whole season called Wrongful Conviction Junk Science where we covered arson, bite marks. We covered well, arson um, is so um, bad. Oh, shaken baby syndrome. One right. of the ones that drives me crazy. Tool mark analysis, right? Um, even fingerprints are largely junk science, believe it or not. Yeah, why is the, that? The, I know I've heard people say that, but I've also seen a lot of cases where they go, oh my God, we've had this partial palm print or fingerprint, whatever it is. For years, we've been trying to figure out who it was. We just figured it out. And a lot of times it feels like maybe they did figure it out. And But I know I've heard people say that we put way too much stock in the finger. Is it the person looking at the prints or is it just in general, it's, it's not as uh, ideal as we would like to think? Well, there's a ton of subjectivity in it, right? And by the way, hair analysis is another one. There's so many. 911 call analysis. I mean, bite marks is one of the worst ones, but still, shaken baby syndrome drives me crazy. Um, so, and there's so many people being tried today. There are people all over the country being tried on shaken baby syndrome just because they had the worst tragedy befall them that could happen to anyone, which was that they had a child who was sick and died. Could you and, imagine? Could you imagine? Well, I mean, do I don't even like to... I, I mean... I don't even like to think of any harm coming to my children. But the thought of waking up and seeing one of my children, I, I, you know, you don't even like to say it, and then being arrested for that, knowing that you didn't do it, like, what, what, that's it. Like, you know, yeah. that's even nightmare. one of those where I think, where I say, oh, I'm smart. I could talk my way out of this. You start talking to me about that. You did it. It's your fault. I may actually say, Jason, fuck it. Just put me in jail. I don't give a fuck. Right? Well, that's well fuck you and fuck this. And because I don't even know how you would find the will to fight. 
Yeah, it's a particularly terrifying uh, junk science because of that. And most um, qualified um, doctors and neurologists agree now that it is impossible to shake a baby hard enough to rattle its brain without at least breaking its neck. And don't forget, no one's ever seen anyone shake a baby to death. There's never been a video of it. There's never been any evidence that it's actually even possible. And the guy who coined the phrase was a guy named Dr. Norman Buttkelch about 60, 70 years ago in England. And he didn't mean it to be used this way. He just was you know, wanted to advise parents to be more gentle when they did shake their kids awake or tried to give them, you know. Um, and so when he realized it was being weaponized by prosecutors, he spent the rest of his life, he lived to be 104 years old, trying to explain to people that this is not real, that this is this thing that he invented is not an actual science, that there's no evidence of any baby ever having been shaken to death. They had, I think, the Penn State football team, they did an experiment with the, you know, with the medical school there, whatever it was, where they tried to take, you know, they took life-size, you know, dummies of children and they put them a simulated brain inside their head. They tried to the football players shake them hard enough to rattle their brains. They couldn't do it. It doesn't make sense. You don't shake things when you're angry at them, by the way. Start with that, right? As human beings, if we get angry at something, we hit it, we kick it, or we throw it. We don't shake it. And second right. of all, when you think about it, it's, it's often women who are convicted of this, which makes it extra tragic. Most of those people have other children who, lose, who they lose custody of forever. And even if they are, are lucky enough to be exonerated, those kids have to live with having been separated from their parent after losing their sibling and living with this doubt because the government has planted in their heads that their mom might have killed their brother or sister. And it's all just a, 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 an absolute horrible, horrible thing. But think about it, too, just on these layman's terms, right? If you've got a woman who's an average-sized mom, right, and some of these people, we've had people be convicted even though they were on bed rest or they just had their tubes tied or they were like not even capable of lifting a bottle of milk, much less a baby or a 15 pound or 20 pound kid, whatever it was. Or, you know. And then think about this. In order to shake something hard enough to rattle it, whatever it is, you have to hold it at arm's length, right? You can't hold it close to you. That's, not gonna, that's called right. rocking, right? That's gentle. <laughs> right. So... How strong do you have to be to hold something at arm's length that's wiggling, that's alive, that weighs 15, 20 pounds, and shake it that violently? It's, it's ridiculous. It's nonsense. But yet, it's still taught in major medical schools, Ivy League medical schools. It's still taught as an actual science, and it's still, it's still implanted in all these people's heads because they watch these shows on TV, and they think it's real, and then they go and convict people, and then they let to regret it later. Well, so, haven't there been instances of babies. they specifically go after the parent? Because, you know, Lazo, you're talking about this is already your worst nightmare. Something horrible's happened yeah. to your kid. But I've seen multiple instances where you hear a story about a parent who has a, a child who dies, and then they have a second child die. And no one suspected them of any wrongdoing the first time around. But once the second child dies, prosecutors are like, well, now they've had two little kids die. Right. So in their mind, they go, well, they must have done something. As if, like, look, we know how statistics work. Right. And, and how there's 8 billion people on Earth. So, yes, someone is going to have, unfortunately, two kids die at right. different times. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there was a crime wrong. committed. Sure. And it drives me nuts. Right. But there are, some, there are some pediatricians and other types of doctors who will just get up and testify and say whatever the prosecution wants in whatever case they want. And that's why you'll see these clusters like Cuyahoga County, 
you know, in, in I hope you have some listeners in Cuyahoga because it's it's been a hotbed. There's so many shaken baby cases in this one county. It doesn't make any sense. What is all the parents shake their kids there? Like it's ridiculous. It's right. just that they they're willing to lie, and the prosecutors and judges are willing to go along with it. And as a result, you have John Jones and all these other people whose children died of medical emergencies, and you know they were responsible, loving parents, and they're in prison for you know sometimes for life or however long it might be, but. I do want to, I know we have limited time, but I want to get back just quickly to the fingerprints because I think the fingerprints are one of the most surprising of the junk sciences. Right. And very different in some way, right? In the sense that bite mark and, and other things like that have zero scientific validity, right? In fact, I'll just touch on that quickly. There was a study done, a forensic onontologist, where the, uh, um, I think the Innocence Project and Chris, Chris Fabricant was involved with this one, but where they took uh, about 100 forensic dentists and onontologists, and they gave them evidence from actual cases, and they learned in examining this evidence, not only couldn't they tell whose bite mark it was, they couldn't tell it whether it was a human or an animal bite mark, and they often couldn't tell if it was a bite mark at all. And yet they're getting up in courtrooms and testifying with absolute certainty that to the exclusion of everybody else, Laszlo's the guy that bit this person while they were murdering them or whatever it was, right? So, and they'll say to the exclusion of everybody else. The same the same thing, you know, it was done with hair analysis, right? Where there was a joint study conducted by the FBI, the National uh, uh, Associate, uh, uh, the National Academy of Sciences, um, no National Associate of Forensic Science. Yeah, Associate. I'm, I'm forgetting the exact uh, name of the organization, but one of these national organizations, um, the Innocence Project, and I think the FBI or DOJ, whatever it was. And you can look this up. They studied 392 cases in which. Hair analysis was the primary cause of conviction, one of the, one of the main bodies, pieces of evidence against somebody who was convicted. And they found that in 96% of those cases, the FBI expert who testified was either wrong or lied. Now, I'd like to say they were just wrong in 96% of the cases, but it's hard to say that they were just wrong when in every time they were wrong, they were wrong in favor of the prosecution. And... This yeah, was, right. that's you know that's the interesting caveat there. Like, that. man, we are just wrong every time yeah, it convicted was, someone. We are never wrong on the other way. That was a bombshell report, and then and then the um, and then the other thing, you know, and then the, and I promise I will get back to fingerprints because I've got an amazing fingerprint story for you. But on the um, on the more holistic problem of uh, the objectivity and confidence of uh, medical examiners um, and, uh, um, and other professionals that are trained to do this, this type of work that we trust, right, in these situations and that, you know, get up with certainty in these courtrooms and we see them on TV shows. So there was a study conducted in the last few years where 130 of these medical professionals were brought the same exact evidence of an actual case of a three-year-old child who was brought to the hospital with extreme, you know, extreme medical emergency and the child died. And so this exact same evidence was, was given to each of these medical professionals, forensic pathologists and medical examiners. <clears throat> but 65 of them, they told them that this was a white child who was brought in by a grandparent. The other 65, they said it was a black child who was brought in by the mother's boyfriend. Well, 
guess what? Yep. The, the ones who were told that it was a black child, the exact same evidence, were four times more likely to rule it a homicide. Four times. So what does that tell you about the competence and objectivity of these people? It tells you you got to take it with a big grain of salt. That's what it tells you. And so now to, to wrap this up with fingerprints. So we did, this was the most surprising episode of the wrongful conviction junk science series that we did. Fingerprints. I even thought, well, if it's a fingerprint, but then you think about it, right? And fingerprints are accurate. If you take a fingerprint on an ink pad, right? And then you take another fingerprint on an ink pad, and then you look at them both under a microscope. Now, it's never been proven that there aren't two people that have the same fingerprints, right? It's not okay. DNA. But yeah. even, if you accept, even if you start from the premise that there are no two people who have the same fingerprints, in that case, you can make a scientific judgment as to whether that's the same person. But now, let's say somebody's strangling somebody else, right? And that person is squirming around and there's sweat and maybe there's blood and there's oil on your skin and there's oil on the person's skin who's strangling you, right? And you're getting a partial fingerprint. You're not getting a whole fingerprint, right? Because it's not an ink pad. It's not a blood. You know, it's, it's like a, it's a moving surface, et cetera, et cetera. So now you're lifting that fingerprint and now you're giving it to somebody who's, as we've just proven, not objective. Often that person is told, hey, uh, yeah, hey, Jim, well, we think we got the guy here. This looks like his fingerprint. Can you take a look at this and tell if it's a match? Right. We know that that yeah. person now has lost objectivity. So it's not a perfect science. And here's how not perfect it really is. And again, you can listen to this episode of wrongful conviction, junk science, and you'll see. But you may remember. What was it about uh, 15, 20 years ago? There was that horrible day in Madrid where um, I don't remember the exact year, maybe 20 years ago, but there were. There were train bombings in Madrid. I think eight trains were bombed and 190 people died. Horrible, horrible day. Awful act of terrorism, right? And international, you know, manhunt for the person who did it. Well, they found a fingerprint on a, on a bag or something that had been left at the scene or whatever it was. They found a fingerprint on something related to the bombs. So they're now worldwide looking for this person, of course. And... The FBI comes up with a hit. It's a, it's a guy who lives in Oregon. He had recently converted to uh, the Muslim faith. And he was an attorney. And they're like, we got your guy. Absolutely certain this is the guy. Well, there was a problem. Problem was, he'd never been out of the United States. And he didn't have a passport. He never had a passport. But they're like, doesn't matter. This is your guy right here. <laughs> and I la again, I hate to laugh, but I laugh because of the absurdity so of it, right? You're like, this is the guy who never left the country. They're like, meh. He must have. We've got part of a fingerprint. <laughs> but no, seriously, he doesn't have a passport or anything. They're like, eh, fuck it. Yeah. Good enough, right? I mean, <laughs> outright, like, what, what, no other world does that happen. So three of the top fingerprint experts at the FBI were insisting that this was the guy. Until finally, the Spanish authorities were like, you know what? Fuck off. <laughs> like, we're going to, if you, you guys will just leave us alone, we're going to go look for the guy who actually did this. Because he ain't the guy. Because he never set foot in our country. And he certainly didn't, you know. In no other world does that, like, you were giving baseball analogies yesterday. I just told you, hey, man, 
I hit a home run for the Yankees yesterday. And you're like, you've never even been to fucking New York. I'm like, too bad. Right. Too bad, buddy. Too bad. Too bad. There's no record of it. Eh, fuck off. It Did it. Like that, there's no, like, that just doesn't happen anywhere. That's pretty scary stuff. And, you know, listen, the good news is we're here talking about it. And the more people learn, the better we're all going to be. You know, I always say. Agreed. I'm thrilled that, that our podcast, and by the way, have you guys heard our new one called Bone Valley? Uh, you know what? I added it to myself. I was I meant to listen to it this week, but I will be listening to it soon. That one will blow your mind, the Leo Schofield murder case in, in Florida. You'll hear it on our podcast. The actual killer confesses in details only he could know, and yet Leo remains in prison after 36 years. So um, it's, it's just a mind-blowing show. And then we have the other new one called The War on Drugs, but um, which is which is doing great and, and really educating the public into how we got into this disastrous failed social policy. Well, it's cost us a trillion dollars and millions of lives. Um, hey, so, Jason, yeah. uh, I, uh, I want to thank you for coming on our podcast. I, you're a fascinating human being. At the beginning of this podcast, I asked you how you got into this. And you said you wanted to make your dad proud. Yeah. I can't believe... Yeah. Uh, that you haven't surpassed all of that, my friend. The stuff that you do and what you're doing for the world is, you know, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I didn't know your dad, never met your dad, uh, but I know you, and he must have been a hell of a man. He was a great man. I miss him. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, he inspires me and inspired a lot of other people. So um, I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm very fortunate to have been you know, born where I was to whom I was, and I know sure. it. And so just take that privilege, and that's good luck, and hopefully turn it into some good for some other people. So yep, anyway, absolutely. I appreciate you guys wrongful having conviction, me on. And, wrongful conviction, and uh, was, what was the other one? Righteous conviction? What was the other one we were just talking about? Yeah, well, wrongful conviction, I mean, righteous conviction is a whole different story. But I don't want to get people dizzy, but right. I would say if you're interested in this cause, check out wrongful convictions. And you must be if you're still listening to us yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, check out Bone Valley. Oh, yes. Bone like a dog with a bone. And then the War on Drugs is the new new, new one that we're super excited about because I think it's going to help to turn the tide on this disastrous, like I said, failed social policy that we have adhered to for over 100 years in America. Well, Excellent. Thank we you appreciate so much. Thank you been again, subjected man. to, I should say, been subjected to. Yeah, thanks, yeah. guys. Good talking to you. Thank you, too, you as well. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. And that is it. Thank you so much again to Jason Flum for coming on the show today. Make sure to check out his podcast, Wrongful Conviction. Toxic and Problematic is brought to you by Mitra 9 Kratom. Visit mitra-9.com and use promo code PROBLEMATIC for 20% off. Video made possible by our friends at Direct Computer Outlet off Johnson Drive in Mission. Music graciously provided by our friend George, who can be found at Kid Computer on Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can do so by donating at the link in the episode description. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. 
Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, oh, oh. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.